The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4. Starting in verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. And all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says Yahweh of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says Yahweh of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. These are God's words. God would stop speaking. For the next 400 years, the heavens would be silent And there would be no word from God. But what would would be his last words to his people before 400 years of silence? It's the last six verses of the book of Malachi that comprise God's final words before 400 years years of silence. These last six verses that we're going to look at this morning and tonight actually constitute the final words of the Old Testament era. And I will tell you this morning, when I opened my Bible to the book of Malachi, there was something about it that was striking. That's the end. That's the end. That's the end of the Old Testament. These these are the last six verses that God would speak to His Old Covenant people for 400 years. It's an astonishing thing. And so, if you were going to stop speaking for 400 years, for some of you it might be a good idea. If you were going to stop speaking for 400 years, those last words that you would say up to that time of silence, wouldn't they be important words? Wouldn't they be words of of weight and significance? That is what the last six verses of Malachi are for us. These are important words. They are words of tremendous weight, tremendous significance. God is about to say... I am going to keep silent. I'm not going to send prophet. I'm not going to send word from heaven for 400 years. So pay attention to what I'm going to say to you because I'm only going to say it once. In this final chapter of Malachi, we actually come to a prophetic section of Scripture Uh, Hence, the prophet Malachi. And what we find in this prophecy of Malachi chapter 4 is on the one hand, we find these sobering, very sobering words of judgment. But on the other hand, as we've seen through Malachi, we also find these comforting words of hope. And both the words of sobering judgment and the words of comforting hope, they're, they're both prophetic words. And it goes like this, the day of the Lord is coming. And it's terrifying. The Messiah is coming. And it's glorious. 
Now, as, as we look at this last chapter today, we need to remember that Old Testament prophecy has in it what is often called prophetic perspective. And by prophetic perspective, what that means is that the Old Testament prophets oftentimes looked at the first advent of Messiah and the second advent of Messiah as actually one event. And and we've illustrated this before like a mountain range. As the prophets looked forward to the coming of Messiah, often the first and second advents come together to us like mountains. And from a distance, that it looks just like one mountain. It just looks like it's all crammed together. It's not until you actually get to the first one that you see that there's a tremendous expanse between the first and the second. That's the prophetic perspective. In Malachi chapter 4, we're going to have prophetic prediction of the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, and they are brought together for us like a mountain range. And so let's consider these words from God. The first thing that Malachi says as the voice of God to his people is, for behold, the day is coming. The day is coming. Now, now for the prophets, that particular expression, the day, is an explicit reference to the day of the Lord. And so what Malachi is saying is, behold, As God winds down his words to you for 400 years, here's what he wants you to know. The day of the Lord is coming. Now, technically, the day of the Lord is any time, any time where God directly intervenes in history for either salvation or judgment. That constitutes in redemptive history the day of the Lord. Whenever God intervened for either judgment or for blessing or salvation, that was, a, that was considered a day of the Lord. And in fact, in Old Testament history, there were a number of events that were identified as the day of the Lord. The Assyrian invasion in 722 BC into the northern kingdom was considered the day of the Lord. The Babylonian invasion in 586 B.C. into the southern kingdom was considered the day of the Lord. The locust invasion prophesied by Joel was considered the day of the Lord. The restoration of the Jews to Jerusalem in 539 B.C. was also considered a day of the Lord. And in fact, the first advent was considered the day of the Lord. But it is the second coming of Jesus... That time when he returns with power and glory to judge both the living and the dead, that is considered the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate expression of the day of the Lord. Old Testament scholar Alan Ross says, The day of the Lord can refer to any divine intervention to judge and to bless, but the great day of the Lord refers to the second coming of Christ. So in our text, as we look at it, it, it's it's messianic the whole way through. In fact, all the way back to chapter 3, starting in that section, um, the, the, the prophetic prediction of a coming messenger and the messenger of the covenant and the Lord coming from his temple or coming to his temple, it's all messianic. And as you get to chapter 4, what you realize is that the prophetic prediction that the day is coming, this is a reference to what we would identify now as New Testament believers as the second advent. The great last day, the day of the Lord is in view, and it's absolutely emphatic. It is coming. Malachi said, 2,500 years ago, the day of the Lord is coming. Now, certainly, Malachi and and after him, there would be expressions, manifestations of the day of the Lord. But that ultimate fulfillment of which he speaks here, it is just as true today, 2,500 years later, as it was when Malachi first spoke those words to the southern kingdom. 
The day of the Lord is coming. And so Peter tells us about mockers and scoffers who say, oh, you know, God's been telling us that the day of the Lord was going to be coming for a long time. And look, it hasn't come yet. And it is Peter who reminds us that the Lord is not slow concerning his promise. But he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The fact that that 2,500 years has passed and the day of the Lord, the ultimate day of the Lord, the great day of the Lord, the terrible day of the Lord has not come is simply a demonstration of the exceptional, extraordinary mercy of God. The fact that we are gathered here in the year 2007 and the day of the Lord has delayed and has not come is an act of divine mercy to those who have yet to believe in Jesus. Now Malachi describes the day and he describes it as burning like a furnace. By the way, this is the same kind of furnace used in uh, Daniel chapter 3 that's heated up seven times, in in which uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were put in, this big honeycomb-type thing. And uh, and, and notice the day of the Lord is burning like a furnace. Now, we've already seen burning in Malachi in the refiner's fire. But this burning for the day of the Lord is not the refiner's fire of chapter 3 and verse 2. That fire purifies, that fire sanctifies God's people. That refining fire of which we sang this morning and Malachi prophesied about, that fire is for the good of God's people. This fire is a consuming fire. This is the fire of judgment. This, This is the fire that consumes and burns like a furnace. As the Old Testament people of God heard this word, there would have been something that connected with them as they heard that the day is coming like the the burning of a furnace. God had revealed himself in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, as a consuming fire. In fact, at the end of Hebrews chapter 12, when the writer says, our God is a consuming fire, he's borrowing that language from Deuteronomy. And it is in the context of Deuteronomy that God tells his people that one of the covenant curses he would bring upon them for disobedience to the covenant and unbelief would be he would consume them with fire. That's what's in view here. Malachi then says, all of the arrogant and all the evildoers, they'll they'll be like chaff, and the coming day will set them ablaze. And so Malachi is now, in a sense, focusing in on who needs to take very special notice to the reality of the coming day of the Lord that's going to be like the burning of a furnace. He says, first of all, all of the arrogant, all the proud, and the evildoers. Now, they've already been mentioned Look in your Bibles back to chapter 3 and verse 15. This is what those who are arrogant and, and, and have not trusted in God say. They belittle God. So now we call the arrogant, and they're among the arrogant, blessed. And not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. And so Malachi has already introduced us to the arrogant and to the doers of wickedness. And here the proud... Or the arrogant are those who live life and simply think that they don't need God. The arrogant or the proud are those who actually live in utter independence away from God. The proud, the arrogant would be those who would think, you know what? People that depend on God, that's a crutch. I don't need God. I don't need to depend upon God. I don't need his direction in my life. I don't need him to tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to live the way I want to live. They live for self. They always put themselves first. And in so doing, God identifies them as the proud or the arrogant. The evildoer, the practitioner of sin and wickedness. In the Bible... There is, a, there is a fundamental distinction of those who are committed to a patterned life of doing wickedness and those who have repented and yet still sin. We need to remember that, that all of us 
do sinful things. All of us have remaining corruption in our hearts. All of us still find that we have darkness in our minds and sin in our hearts. And, and, and that causes us to be very ugly at times. And it causes us to do bad things at times. But there is a fundamental difference between a person who struggles with sin and is trying to live in the grace of God and in obedience to Christ and the person who gives themselves to just living a patterned life of disobedience obedience and rebellion and wickedness. And that's the picture that Malachi is painting for us. The proud, the arrogant, those who who have said no to God, yes to self, living for themselves, telling God, I don't need you in any way, shape or form, get out of my life. And the evildoers, those who are committed to living for their own lusts and their own desires. Malachi says that for for them, they are going to be like chaff. If you ever have worked in a wheat field in ancient Palestine, I don't know if there's any among you who have done that. During harvest time, what you would do is you'd gather in the wheat and you'd have a large pitchfork, and you would be down in in a pit area and a threshing floor, and you would take the wheat and you would throw it up, and what would happen is the heavier wheat would come back down and the wind would blow the chaff away. And then the chaff, actually, as the wind would blow it, it would be like leaves on your lawn. Of course, we don't have leaves on our lawns, but you know what I'm saying, how they accumulate together, and, 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 and all of a sudden you'd have all this chaff. Well, the, the thing with the chaff is that it was absolutely worthless, but it was also totally combustible. And so what God is telling the proud and what he is telling the evildoers is that you are exactly like chaff. There is absolutely no substance to your life. And in fact, your life is combustible. And when your life comes into contact with the great day of the Lord that's like a burning furnace, you are going to be absolutely consumed. It is, it is an absolutely incredible indictment against the, the, the folly and the, 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 the nothingness of a life of pride and a life of living for sin and self. God says at the end of the day, that life is just like chaff. And that chaff is combustible when it comes into contact with my holiness. And one of these days, your life, which lacks complete substance and anything of value or worth, is going to be absolutely consumed. And that's what God means when he says, and it will leave neither root nor branch. The idea of root and branch is the idea of totality, incompletion. In other words, what God's indictment is against the unbeliever, against the proud, against the arrogant, against the evildoer, what his indictment is, is listen, there is not one single solitary part, one little microscopic element of your life that is valuable and worth keeping. And so when I come back in the fire of judgment, the totality of what you are, and what you've done as a proud person, an arrogant person, as an evildoer, it is going to be absolutely consumed. Nothing will be left. Beloved, the Bible says that that day is coming. The Bible says that that day is certain. The Bible says that that day is a reality. The New Testament tells us it will come suddenly like a thief in the night, that we will not be expecting it. And just as labor pains come suddenly upon a pregnant woman, so that day will come. And it will be the day of truth. You can take chaff and you can paint it, And you can take chaff and you can call it something else. And you can take chaff and you can call it wheat. And you can take chaff and you can eat it and think it's good. But the fact is, is that the day of truth is coming. 
That is what the the awesome reality of the coming day of the Lord is meant to instill in us. Is Listen, there is a day of truth coming. There is a day of, of divine, holy fire that will test what my life and your life is all about. And so here's the question. Are you ready? Are you ready? Or is your heart still filled with pride and lifted up against God? Are you still committed to just living for self? Are you still committed just for trafficking and sin and following the lusts of your own heart? The Bible says, listen, the day is coming. The day is coming when the truth will be known and the chaff will be consumed. One of the deep concerns of my own heart is that we have our children and they're, and they're brought up in the church and there's certain expectations, rightfully so, biblical expectations, expectations of behavior and, and children are really good, just like adults are, but perhaps are even better. Uh, they're really good at putting on a front in this area of life But when you get away from that area of life, all of a sudden there's something totally different. Now, I I may just have described some of you adults, but, but for our children, you need to understand this. The God of heaven knows your heart, and he knows what pride is residing there, and he knows what commitment to wickedness and evil doing is there, and he knows what you're like in the secret place. And what you need to understand is, behold, the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. And you may be able to fool mom and dad, and you may be able to fool your elders, and you may be able to fool your church friends, but listen, the day is coming. That's the bad news. That's the bad news. But the Bible has a pattern. The Bible has a pattern of news delivery. The Bible always sets us up by telling us the bad news first. And then the Bible does something wonderful, and that is against the backdrop of bad news, then it brings in good news, intrinsically good news, wonderfully good news, and that's what you have in verse 2. Notice, but for you... Who fear my name. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you'll go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. All of a sudden you've got this great transition. But the day of the Lord is coming. The proud, the arrogant, the evildoers are like chaff. They're going to be consumed. Root and branch. Nothing will be left. They will be absolutely consumed in divine judgment. But, but, but. For you who fear My name. This has been a predominant theme in this little book of Malachi. God has talked about fearing his name, honoring his name, being in awe of his name over and over and over again. Uh, He he, uh, encourages his people to fear his name, to esteem his name, to honor his name. And so as you look at that concept of what it is to fear the name of the Lord, the conclusion is pretty simple. It's, It's a reference to true believers who faithfully love and obey and worship God. Those who fear the Lord are true believers who actually have an apprehension, a mental and, and, and as it were, experiential apprehension of who God is and who they are before this great and holy God. Those who fear God's name are those who live with the consciousness of His presence They live in the consciousness of his holiness and they live in the awareness of his goodness to them. And these these people, those who fear God's name, are contrasted with the arrogant and the evildoers. To fear the name of the Lord is to be humbled before God. To fear the name of the Lord is to recognize who God is, who we are. That always leads inevitably to humility before God in contrast to the proud, to the arrogant. 
To fear the Lord is to turn from evil, the Proverbs tell us. And so those who fear the Lord are not those who practice evil and who are perpetually doing wickedness, but those who are, because of the fear of the Lord, turning from evil to live for the Lord and to serve Him. But for you who fear the name of the Lord, the Son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Now, you you know, frankly, if it weren't for Charles Wesley and his use a, a, a number of times in his hymns of this particular expression, son of righteousness, we might actually just kind of miss it. We didn't pay close attention to the way that Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, alludes to this text in Luke chapter 1. We might actually miss the significance of it, but notice the beauty of this. The son, S-U-N, of righteousness. Now, I'm going to submit to you that, first of all, that is a biblical imagery for God himself. You don't need to turn there, but let me read to you Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 26. And listen to this. The light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be seven times brighter, like the light of seven days, on the day the Lord binds up the fracture of his people and heals the bruise he has inflicted. In Isaiah's prophecy, it likens God and his coming to his people as a, as a day that has been brightened, not only brightened and brightened, but brightened seven times as bright as usual. And when he comes, what happens when the brightness of the Lord comes to his people? He brings them healing. It's also a biblical imagery for Messiah. Some of the last words of King David. 2 Samuel 23, verses 3 and 4, David says, The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, The one who rules the people with justice, who rules in the fear of God, is like the morning light when the sun rises on a cloudless day, the glisten of rain on sprouting grass. And so as Malachi uses this expression, the son of righteousness, the image is of God himself coming to his people in brightness and in healing. It is is an allusion to the, the messianic reference that David makes in 2 Samuel 23. But it also, son of righteousness, combines together two messianic figures. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, the people sitting in the darkness will see a great light, right? And I have appointed you to be the light to the nations or to the Gentiles. Jesus comes into this world, John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He is called the bright and morning star in the book of the Revelation. And so here the idea of light and sun are put together. And then, of course, the righteous branch comes, Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. And what is his name? Jehovah Sidkenu, which means Yahweh is our righteousness. And so Malachi, just just like prophets before him, they take different messianic figures and pictures and put them together. And here we have the son of righteousness, which I believe is a reference to the Lord Jesus. And notice what happens. For you who fear the Lord, the son of righteousness comes with healing in its wings. The idea of healing there is the idea of God's redemptive activity. Throughout redemptive history, the picture of us is that in our sin, we are diseased, we are broken, we are sick, we are ailing. And what happens is when the Son of Righteousness comes, He's got healing in His wings. And the idea of the wings is the beams coming out from that Son. And so we read in Psalm 107 and verse 20, He sent His word and He healed them and He delivered them from all their destructions. Walt Kaiser says, When the sun sent forth its rays, like the winged disc so familiar to the ancient Near East, the long winter of suffering for the righteous would come to a glorious end. E.W. Hengstenberg, in the term healing, regard as 
paid to the healing, animating, and enlivening power of the natural sun. The winter and the night of affliction has made the righteous feeble and miserable, but now the healing of the sun has come. Zacharias was a priest. And it was his turn to serve in the temple. And he goes into the temple, and it's a great honor. And he goes into the temple to begin to offer incense and prayers. And an angel appears to him and gives him a most amazing promise. Your wife, who's an old lady by now, is going to have a baby. And of course, he responds with, Blessed be the name of the Lord. God can do anything. (laughs) No, he says, hey, if you thought Abraham and Sarah were old, check out me and Elizabeth. There's no way we're going to have a baby. And so God, through the angel, gives him a period of silence for him to think about his unbelief. And once, and believe me, over those next nine months, don't you know, Without being able to say anything, he did a lot of thinking. A lot of thinking. He must have searched the scriptures. And then the baby's born. And notice, Zacharias' mouth opens once he says his name is John. Writes it down. And in Luke's gospel, it tells us that Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. And he gives this magnificent prophecy. And then he says at the end of this prophecy, he says, And you, child will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, notice this, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. As Zacharias mulled over the prophetic scripture during the nine-month period, and all of a sudden God loosened his tongue, and he begins to declare in the power of the Spirit the coming of Messiah, the coming of his Son who would prepare Messiah's way. What does he do? He makes an allusion, he makes a reference to the sunrise from on high, which will visit us. As Zechariah read Malachi chapter 4, you know who he saw? He saw the coming Messiah. He saw the coming Messiah in the sunrise. He saw the coming Messiah who would come and visit his people. Now, Malachi says, As for you who fear my name, The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And then he gives another image. He says, and you'll go forth and you'll skip about like calves from the stall. And so the the, the image is absolutely beautiful. The idea is, is that once the coldness of winter and the darkness of night has been broken in our lives, there is this wonderful sense of freedom and liberation that breaks forth in joy as the sun of righteousness dawns and brings light into our darkness and into our gloom. And the image that Malachi uses is an image that if you, you were raised up on a farm or on a ranch, maybe you've seen it before. The picture is, is that during the wintertime, the little the, the, the calves are put into these narrow stalls. Once the springtime comes, they're let out. And the picture is these, these frisky young calves that are absolutely full of energy and they're jumping and running and they're kicking up their legs and their heels after having been confined in that narrow stall. They're absolutely filled with energy and the fervor of youth and health, kicking and bucking and, and lifting their heels high in a state of exhilaration. And so the picture is when the sun of righteousness actually rises on God's people who know what it is to live 
live in the coldness of winter and in the darkness of night, once the sun of righteousness rises on them with healing in his wings, they are like that little calf that's just let out of the stall and he's so filled with energy and fervor and joy that he goes running and jumping and leaping, exhilarated at his newfound freedom. And that's the picture of what happens when Jesus Christ comes into our lives. He brings into our hearts and into our lives the liberating sunshine of his own love. And there is a liberty that sets us free. And all of a sudden, those narrow confines of darkness and coldness and sin are now burst forth for us. And we can go running and leaping and praising God. And then Malachi says, and you'll tread down the wicked. You'll tread down the wicked. You'll tread down the wicked for there'll be ashes under the soles of your feet. Notice there'll be ashes. Why? Because the consuming fire of judgment has has already come. On that day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. The imagery for the people of God is triumph and vindication over their oppressors and their persecutors. And they're tormentors. There is is something that is so hard for us to relate to in the Bible. And that is a verse like this. And and, and the reason it's so hard for for many, if not most of us, to relate to is because we, we we don't know by experience what it is to actually be oppressed and tormented and downtrodden by people who hate us. We don't know what it is to have people driving tanks down our streets and coming into our homes and taking our wives and our daughters. We don't know what that's like. We don't know what it's like to have to try to escape from a village because the enemy is coming and their sole purpose is to kill every single person who lives in that village. Our brothers and sisters in the Sudan know exactly what that's like. Our brothers and sisters in many places in the world know exactly what that's like. Our brothers and sisters throughout the history of the Christian church know exactly what it is like to be under somebody else's heel. They know exactly what it's like to be enslaved. They know exactly what it's like to be oppressed. They know exactly what it is like to actually have somebody else imposing their will over theirs by force. They know what it is to actually have the heartbreak of being persecuted, of seeing mothers torn from children and fathers torn from children and husbands from wives. And you know what? We don't have a clue. We don't have a clue. And so we read things in the Bible about triumphing over the wicked, treading them under our feet. And we think of that and we go, that's kind of archaic. That's kind of barbaric. I'm so glad that we're better Christians than that. We're naive. We're naive. The picture in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 3 is a picture that goes right back to the very first gospel promise, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. What is the seed of the woman going to do? She is going to cr- he is going to crush the head of the serpent under his heel. One of the promises for the people of God is triumph over God's enemies and theirs. And so the Apostle Paul says to the Roman Christians in Romans chapter 16 and verse 20, and again, in reference, in connection with Genesis 3.15, and very soon the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. And the reality is, is that when the Lord comes, there is final and ultimate victory for the saints who actually share in Christ's victory. And so here the Son of Righteousness comes and He rises with healing in His wings and He sets us free with joy and exhilaration. And He comes and He says, you know, ultimate victory, ultimate triumph 
is yours in me. That means that one of these days, one of these days, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns in power and glory, he will take the dragon, the serpent of old, the deceiver of the brethren, he will take him and he will forever cast him into the lake of fire forever. There is coming a day when the enemy of our souls and all of God's enemies will be conquered and vanquished once and for all. And you know, one of our problems is we don't feel the pressure of the enemy in order to be able to rejoice in that. This is quite a text. And this is what it says to us. The day of the Lord is coming. Paul says it's going to come just like a thief in the night. It's going to be the day of judgment. And I'd remind us this morning that the Bible is not apologetic about its emphasis on judgment, and neither should we. If you're among the proud, that is, you're here today, and you think you don't need God, and you just live for yourself. If you're among the evildoers, you practice that which the Bible calls sin, and you do it with abandon because it's what you want to do. You need to understand that judgment day is coming, and you need to turn to Christ, and you need to turn to Christ now, which means you need to turn away from your pride. You need to turn away from your evil practices, and you need to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for sinners. That is the only way to have refuge and safety in the day of judgment, is to turn to Christ and to turn to Christ now. You need to understand that the Bible says that he came once in reference to sin. That is to lay his life down, to pay the penalty for our sin. And he came as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. But he is coming again, and he is coming not this time in reference to sin, but in reference to judgment. And in fact, it will be the great and terrible day of the Lord, so that even as we see in the book of Revelation chapter 6, there will be those who refuse to repent, but what they'll do is they'll cry out for the rocks to fall on us and to crush us and to hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. And so if you don't know Christ today, you need to understand that there is a sense of urgency. He is not only Savior, but He will be judge. And I can tell you today, with all of the authority of Scripture, that Jesus Christ stands before you with open arms and he will receive any sinner who turns from their sin and comes to him by simple faith. Whether you're 11, whether you're 5, whether you're 75, 85, or somewhere in between. No one is too young and no one is too old. He is a willing and able Savior to any who will turn to him in repentance and faith. The day of the Lord is coming. In this passage also, the messianic description that we have of Jesus is absolutely glorious. It's absolutely glorious. The image is powerful imagery. You know what the Bible just doesn't say? Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he'll do this and this and this. Why, why does the Bible actually take imagery? The son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Why does the Bible use imagery like that? The Bible uses imagery like that because the reality, the truth that's being conveyed is meant to be felt. It's meant to be experienced. It's meant to be tasted. It's meant to, to, to say, so you mean to tell me that the coming of Jesus into my life is going to be like the feeling of the warm sun rays that come to me. And some of you have done this. You've, 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 you've sat there in a chair, whether at the, at the beach or someplace, and you've actually just, just soaked in what the sun is giving you. And, and it's the imagery. It's powerful. And the Bible says that the sun of righteousness, why? Because it wants you to feel the power of what it means to have Christ as the light of the world come in to your life. The Christian faith is not just some faith that has a few propositions, statement of faith, this is what you've got to believe, A, B, C, D, there's stuff that you've got to believe, but the Christian faith is more than that. The Christian faith is experiential reality. And that's why it uses imagery like a calf leaping out of its stall, kicking, exhilarated. Why? Because... When the sun of righteousness shines on you, there is an experience of joy. 
And that's the way the Bible describes it. So do you feel the darkness and the gloom of night? Do you feel the gloom and the death, the cold of winter? Then turn to the Son of Righteousness. Do you feel the oppression of sin? Do you feel the confinement of sin? Do you feel the sickness of sin? Then turn to the Son of Righteousness who has healing in His wings. When Jesus Christ arises on you and brings light to you, He brings light to your darkness and to your night. He brings righteousness to your sin. He brings joy and liberation to your sorrow and to your bondage. And he brings triumph and victory to your oppression. When the sun of righteousness arises on your soul, on your heart, on your mind, there is transformation. You're different. I was thinking this week, you know, there, there are so many religions in the world and, and, and what they're looking for is for converts. Now, sometimes we use the word conversion and we, we use it in its biblical sense. But in, in many religions of the, of the world, Islam or Mormonism or um, Roman Catholicism, the, the, the idea of converting is, is actually just saying, I, I'm now presently going to change my mind, and I'm going to adopt the ritual. I'm going to adopt the philosophy. I'm going to adopt the principles. I, I'm, I'm now going to stop being this, and I'm going to be this. And you have a convert. You have a person that was one thing, and now, by an act of their will, they are now something else. True biblical Christianity is so different than that. True biblical Christianity is not you just saying, you know what, I think it's time that I adopt the ritual. I think it's time I adopt the philosophy. I think it's time I adopt the worldview. I think it's time that I convert and actually stop being a pagan or this or that and actually start becoming a Christian. That's not Christianity. Christianity is when Jesus Christ, the Son of Righteousness, actually shines into your dark soul and brings His righteousness to cover your sin and shines on you in such a way that He brings healing and transformation and forgiveness and he changes you from the inside out that's biblical Christianity when it happens then Isaiah 58 8 is true then your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you And the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. I wonder this morning, truly, not just what we say with our our mouths, the words that come out, but truly, I wonder how many of us in this place can say, I've tasted, I've seen, I've experienced the sun of righteousness rising coming into my darkness. I wonder how many could actually say, not just, I was raised a Christian and I know the Apostles' Creed and I read my Bible and, 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 and I'm a Christian because, by the way, I, I, I'm an American and all Americans are Christians. I wonder how many, how many of us in this place really and truly have actually had the life-transforming experience of having the Son of Righteousness rise in us and to bring us the healing to our brokenness and our sinfulness that we so desperately need and we all know that we need it. And so this morning, what you need to understand is that on the one hand, a day of darkness and gloom and burning is coming, but the Son of Righteousness has risen with healing in His wings. And He is willing and He's able to shine His saving light into your lives and to make you new. And so so what do you do? You ask Him to shine on you. You ask Him to to, to beam, as it were, His healing rays into your life. You ask Him to be your light. You ask Him to be your righteousness. You say, Lord, I'm 
full of sin and I'm completely undone. Be the son of righteousness to me. Cover me in your righteousness. Bring your healing to me in my brokenness and my sin. I've made such a terrible mess out of my life. And the more, the harder I try, the worse things get. And the more I try to do good, the worse I become. And I realize that I can't fix anything. I can't fix my marriage. I can't fix my kids. I can't even fix myself. I need the healing power of Jesus Christ that comes in the gospel. And you ask him, and you ask him, Lord, be my healer. Be the one who restores me. And I promise you that if you ask him to shine his light into your life, to be your light, if you ask him to be your righteousness, if you ask him to bring healing for your brokenness and your sinfulness, if you ask him, he will come to you, and he will transform you, and he will change you, and you will not be disappointed. Let's pray. Father, we pray for those who are still in darkness and night and winter and death. And they have pride raging in their hearts. And they do what they want to do. Father, we pray that you would come to them today with gospel power the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would bring conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would arise in our hearts with healing in your wings. Father, we pray for those who need the Son of Righteousness to shine in them for the first time and to break the night. We pray that Jesus would come with power. We also pray for those who know Christ, who love Christ, and yet feel the bite of cold, still afraid of the dark, still feel the confines of their sin. Father, we pray that your Son would come to them today the blazing power of the sun. And he would set them free. And that they'd leave this place leaping with joy in their hearts. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.